Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 4. And as you find your way to the passage that was just read for us a few moments ago, Mark chapter 4, let let me ask one more thing of of the Lord in, in prayer before we dive in. Heavenly Father, would you allow your word to carry weight in our lives in this moment? I pray that your word would fall on good, responsive soil. Pray that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you are sending it this evening. We ask that your grace would abound and that you would bring healing to our hurts, that you would bring comfort to our discomfort, whatever the form that may be taking right now, God, we ask for your grace to abound in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 4, you can put your finger on verse 35, that's what we'll be diving into here in a few moments, but... Last week, many of you know that we took our first ever all-church retreat. We went to Camp Casey, took a little over 70 adults and a little over 30 kids out there and just spent two nights at Camp Casey uh, fellowshipping with one another and and spending a considerable amount of time just studying the scriptures together. It was a rich time. It was an informative time. It was an edifying time. And and we left Camp Casey, I feel, uh, with a deeper uh, desire to see Jesus do things in our midst and through our church, a deeper connection with one another, and a deeper awareness of what his word is capable of producing in us and through us in this city. But not long after leaving Camp Casey did uh, some members of our church hit some rough spots, uh, my wife Kim in particular. She was traveling home from Camp Casey and went to take the ferry. We didn't take the ferry going up, but she decided to take the ferry returning. I was already gone. I woke up early Sunday morning to head back to West Seattle to get ready. So it was Kim and and our three kids. And and then Michelle um, Jones was there with her, and they were traveling back together. And while they were trying to board the ferry, there there was a little confusion as to what lane was which and and which lane would lead them into that. And so Kim got in one particular lane and, and sat there for about 30 minutes, and there was no movement. And then she noticed that some cars were moving in a different lane, so she assumed, uh, understandably, that that was the right lane to get in. So she, uh, after about 30 minutes of waiting, she pulled over into the next lane and moved on closer to the ferry, only to discover that that lane that was moving wasn't the right lane either. And so uh, she had to get back into the original lane that she was in. But by that time, she had moved forward a good ways, and other cars had piled into that line. But there was enough space for her to get back over, and so she got back over, and there was one particular driver behind her that took exception to that. Uh, He did not have an appropriate perspective on what was going on, so he responded irrationally to Kim's uh, getting back into line. He did not know the whole story or see the whole picture, and so as as she got back in that lane, the lane stopped, and he proceeded to get out of his car walk up to my wife's window and start banging on it. And, and as he banged on her window, eventually Kim lowered it and asked what was going on, and he just ripped into her, just starting verbally harassing her, threatening her to call the cops and do these things, just really mad that irrationally angry over the fact that she got back in the lane a little closer to the ferry entry than she was prior now, he's yelling at her, he's, he's uh, tearing into her, really, and, and my kids are in the car, and Delaney, who's five years old, she, she senses something's not right, so she gets really scared, she gets really anxious. Well, my wife handles the moment far more gracefully than I would have, and so she cranked the car, and she decided to honor this guy's request, and went back and got back in line somewhere else. Meanwhile, my, wife, my daughter Delaney was just uh, fearful. 
She was anxious. It, it, uh, the guy's words and his aggression unsettled everyone in the car, but the storm seemed to really take hold in Delaney's five-year-old heart. So when I got home later that afternoon, although everyone was still a little upset about what took place, my daughter Delaney was, was visibly disturbed. And she kept saying, Daddy, I'm so anxious. Daddy, I'm so anxious. Are the cops going to come arrest Mommy? And uh, she would ask that question as serious as can be. And she'd just talk about how f- afraid she was and how anxious she was. And I would look at her as her dad, and I would speak a word of promise to her. And I said to her in that moment, Delaney, I assure you, no one is coming to arrest your mother. I assure you, you will never see that guy again. I promise you. And not only do I promise you this, I'm here with you. And since I'm here, I'm not going to let anything happen to you or to your mom in this moment. And I wish, I wish my words and my presence were more comforting to her than they were. She didn't receive my words fully in that moment. She wasn't reassured by my presence in that moment. She continued to say, Daddy, I'm so anxious I didn't even know she knew what that word meant. But daddy, I'm so anxious. Daddy, I'm so fearful. I I wish my words and my presence would have been more comforting to her in that moment than they were. Well, here in Mark chapter 4, we're going to step into a story. A kind of a surprising story. And we're going to see in the lives of the disciples how the words, the promise, and the presence of Jesus, how it should have been more comforting to Jesus' disciples than it initially proved to be. And part of the reason, as the disciples find themselves in this fearful circumstance with much anxiety coming out of them, and they find themselves in this moment, you would think that Jesus' promises and that Jesus' presence would have comforted them. But his promise and his presence did not have the effect that you and I would assume that it would. And the reason for that is because Jesus' identity had not yet been fully disclosed to them. They weren't fully aware of who it was that was with them in this moment. And they weren't yet fully aware of what Jesus was, of who it was that was speaking a word of promise to them in this moment. So you see verse 35, this is where the passage begins. It says, on that day when evening had come, referring to the day that began earlier in Mark chapter 4, this long day of Jesus teaching the disciples and teaching the crowds about the nature of his kingdom. He's been speaking to them in parables and explaining what his kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is like through images and metaphors, through analogies, these powerful pictures uh, where he takes ordinary images to communicate extraordinary realities. And so they have this long day of teaching, a long time in the word together, and then The sun went down and Jesus looks over his disciples and says, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And so after this long day of teaching, this long time of fellowshipping in the word and learning more about the nature of the kingdom of God, Jesus and his disciples get into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side. And and notice it says that they entered the boat just as he was. They were with Jesus in that moment. And as they are stepping into the boat and they are pushing off of shore and we're told that soon after a great storm arose and they found 
pressure surrounding them. They found the waves beating against the side of the boat. They found water just pouring over into the boat that they were in. And what's interesting about this moment is that Jesus initiates it. Jesus says, let us go across to the other side. And if you read in one of the other accounts of this story, say in Matthew chapter 8, we're actually told that the disciples followed Jesus into the boat. And so they are stepping into the boat in obedience to Jesus. They are stepping into the boat in response to Jesus, and they push off only to find themselves in the middle of a storm. Now, one of the myths that you and I need to dispel this evening as we think about our relationship with Jesus, one of the myths that we need to dispel as it relates to following Jesus is this myth that Jesus would never lead us intentionally into a storm. But here, this is precisely what Jesus is doing. Jesus leads his disciples into the storm. And oftentimes, we make the mistake of thinking that if we are in the middle of a storm, if the heat is turned up in our lives, if things are hectic and chaotic, if we find ourselves in a fearful, troubling situation, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking we must have stepped outside of God's will. And there's a terrible line of thinking plaguing Christians and churches today that says if you are having a hard time, if you are suffering through a storm, whatever form it may take in your life, it is the result of some specific and particular sin in your life. That if you were walking in the will of God, you would not be going through the hard thing you're going through. If you were being obedient to Jesus, following his leadership, you wouldn't have a hard time. You wouldn't walk through a storm. But I want to dispel that myth for us tonight because it's not true. And you and I, when it comes to understanding our relationship with Jesus, what life in the kingdom of God is like now, if we're going to understand this dynamic, we have to make room for storms in the will of God. And we need to see how, yes, sometimes following Jesus leads us directly into a storm. Sometimes following Jesus leads us into the hard place. An example of this from the Old Testament would be the experience of Israel in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with this story, God redeemed Israel from years of of slavery to the Egyptians. So he sent the prophet Moses there to represent God to them and to... uh, And he used Moses to perform all these signs and wonders, all these miraculous signs of power to bring Israel out of Egypt. And we're told in the narrative that after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea in response to a miraculous intervention of God, once they got onto the other side, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, we are told that the Lord then led Israel into the wilderness. He brought them into the wilderness where they would travel without water for three days. And the text is very clear to attribute the leadership in that moment to the Lord. They were obeying what God was doing. They were following the Lord, and the Lord led them into the wilderness. And we're told later in that narrative that one of the reasons why God brought Israel into the wilderness, why he brought them into this place where they would be thirsty, where they would hunger, where they would be tempted to grumble and complain against God and his operations in their lives, one of the reasons he did so was because he was testing them. And understand when you read about God's people being tested by trials, whether it's wilderness, 
wanderings or whether it's storms like in Mark chapter 4, whatever the case may be, when you hear about God's people being tested, understand it's not the kind of test that is pass or fail. It's not like an exam you take in school where you must make a certain grade or you must achieve a certain percentage in order to graduate or to move on to the next level. That's not the kind of test that the Bible is referring to when it refers to that dynamic. No, when the Bible talks about testing, it's more in line with what happens to an athlete when an athlete who's ran six miles decides to run seven. It's, it's the type of test that happens when a power lifter uh, lifts a certain amount of weight only to add a couple more plates and then to lift it again. It's a strengthening test. It's a forming test. It's a shaping test. It's not a pass-fail dynamic. It's a test designed to strengthen God's people as it relates to their perception of who God is and as it relates to who God desires them to be as his people. Jesus sometimes leads us into the storm in order to test us or to strengthen us or to transform us. And we must make room for this line of thinking in our understanding of the will of God unless you and I become disillusioned with the character of God. Otherwise, we're going to step into these difficult moments which every one of us will face at some point in time in life, we're going to step into them and we're going to become disillusioned with who God is. And we're going to become disillusioned about the gospel. So we have to make room for this dynamic as it relates to our approach to following Jesus through the world that is. So you may want to ask yourself in this moment, what is, the God, what is God's will for you? Too many times when we talk about the will of God for our lives, we reduce it to focus on some type of destination to some type of goal, to some type of achievement, to some type of place that we want to get to in life. Well, God's will means I'm going to marry someone by this age. Or God's will means I'm, it's, he's going to take me to the place where I have this number of kids. Or God's will is he's going to take me into this company and he's going to elevate me to this particular spot in the chain of command of this company. And we oftentimes reduce God's will to those types of destinations and to those types of achievements. But understand, God's will for your life and God's will for my life is more concerned with our transformation than our destination. And everything that Jesus does in us and through us and around us, he does in order to accomplish that purpose. This is what we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where we're told that God foreknew for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God is concerned about transforming us into the image of Jesus. And sometimes wilderness wanderings and storms are some of the most effective tools in his arsenal. So don't make the mistake of thinking that if you're in the middle of a storm right now, you are there because you've been disobedient. Don't make a mistake of thinking you are in the middle of a storm right now because you haven't followed Jesus faithfully. You may be precisely where you are right now because you're following Jesus faithfully. In this text, we get a picture of Jesus leading his disciples into the storm. And this was no casual storm. This was no calm storm. This is described in verse 37 as a great storm. The word for great there is mega. 
It's a big storm. It came quickly upon them. And, and this type of storm wasn't entirely uncommon when, as it relates to the, uh, the Lake of Galilee and, and where the disciples were in this moment. These ferocious windstorms would arise with some degree of frequency. It was common because the Sea of Galilee was placed about 630 feet, 600 and, yeah, 630 feet beneath sea level, and it's nestled, it's surrounded by some mountains and hills with these ravines where wind and gusts of air would brush through. And, and what would happen is you would, have these, you would have these moments where cool air from the hills and the mountain region would come, and it would clash with the warm air that would rise from the sea. And when that would happen, it would just create these, these violent storms. And so they would happen quite frequently on the Sea of Galilee. And even today, there are many sailors who will not launch on Galilee because of its violent moodiness, because of these types of storms that are quite common and quite intimidating. And what's interesting about this moment is that Jesus is leading the disciples who grew up around the Sea of Galilee. These are disciples who are very familiar with what could happen on that place. They were fishermen. They used to fish these waters all the time. They could probably anticipate when a storm was coming. So it's possible that the disciples could smell the storm coming in the air. And yet Jesus still said, let's get in the boat and let's push off to the other side. And they do so. They follow in obedience to Jesus. And, and because they were familiar with the type of storms that could come up on the Sea of Galilee, they knew what to expect when one came. And this is perhaps why they're so fearful, why they're so afraid. They know that it's possible they could lose their lives. Perhaps they've lost friends and loved ones in these storms before. And so they're afraid in this moment. They're afraid of the storm. They're afraid of perishing. They're afraid of dying. And, and as fearful as the storm was, as you read through the narrative in the way that Mark presents it here, Mark pulls a detail out in verse 38 that probably accounts for a perhaps the reason they were most scared. Yeah, they were scared because the storm was raging and the water and the wind and the waves was threatening their safety in the boat. But when this detail comes out in verse 38, it probably caused even more fear in the disciples. The reason why they were most afraid is found in verse 38 when it says Jesus was in the stern and he was asleep on the cushion. What scared them most, perhaps, in this moment was the fact that the storm was raging, but Jesus was sleeping. And you ask yourself in this moment, what do you, what do, you do with a sleeping Jesus? What do you do in those moments when the storm arises and it is threatening your life, it is intimidating you, it is frightening you, it is arousing anxiety in you, and yet you feel like the Savior isn't paying attention? You feel like he's checked out. You think that Jesus is sleeping on the job, that he's not aware of what's going on and that he is not ultimately in control of your situation. What do you do with a sleeping Jesus? You see, this is one of the reasons why following Jesus is so frustrating because there are times when following Jesus faithfully leads us into the hard place and when we find ourselves in the hard place, we look around and Jesus seems distant from us. He doesn't seem close to us. We open the Bible in those moments and the words on the pages seem stale. We turn to God in prayer and, and the words just don't come out of us very naturally. It seems awkward. We're frustrated. We don't know what to say. We try to quiet down and to listen, but Jesus' voice does not seem to be 
ringing in our ears. He, he seems to be sleeping. What do you do with the sleeping Jesus? What do you do in those moments when you feel abandoned? What do you do in those moments when you feel as though God has turned his back on you? Well, you look at this text and you see that Jesus is asleep in verse 38. And as you read through the gospel story, understand that this is the only time we ever read about Jesus sleeping. The only time Jesus is pictured as sleeping in the gospel is, in the, is at sea in the middle of a storm. And it's interesting because earlier in the gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 34, for example, Jesus is awake when everyone else is sleeping. We're told at the end of chapter 1 that he wakes up while everyone else is sleeping very early in the morning, and he goes and he prays. He spends some time with the Father. So he's awake when everyone else is sleeping in Mark chapter 1, but here in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is sleeping while everyone else is awake. Jesus is sleeping while everyone else is a panic. When the world is falling apart, Jesus is sleeping. And I think, although we don't want to make too much of this dynamic, I do believe we find a good model here for us. A good model for what it means to trust God. A good model for what it means to rest in the fact that this is my Father's world and that God's got this under control. There's a good model here for us because it reminds us that you and I, as disciples of Jesus, it is possible for us to sleep when everything else is in turmoil. We can go to sleep when the world is frantic. We can go to sleep when the world is in a panic because we know that God can be trusted. You see, you and I do not have to live our lives according to the roller coaster rhythm of this world. We don't have to live in frantic panic when the economy rises and falls. We don't have to live in frantic panic when our candidate of choice is not elected president of this country. We do not have to live in a frantic panic when everything seems chaotic and tumultuous around us. We can actually go to sleep and get rest because we know ultimately in our heart of hearts that God can be trusted. And what's interesting in Mark chapter 4 is that this is one of the main themes of this entire chapter. You read earlier in chapter, in one of Jesus' parables, beginning in verse 26, There he's describing the kingdom of God as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. But then notice what he says in verse 27. He scatters seed on the ground and then he goes to sleep and rises night and day. He scatters the seed and he goes to sleep. He scatters the seed and he goes to sleep. This is exactly what Jesus has done in this story. He scattered the seed, so to speak, in verse 35. Let us go across to the other side. This is what's about to happen. We're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. He scattered that seed. He spoke that word. He made that assuring promise. And then he goes to sleep. So it doesn't really matter what storm is raging. That storm is ultimately not going to prevent Jesus from doing what he said he would do. He's going to get to the other side just as he said he would. And so here you get this theme just underlying Mark chapter 4 is Do you and I trust God enough to go to sleep? Do we trust God enough to go to sleep? Moms and dads, do you trust God enough to go to sleep and you don't have your eyes on your infant in the middle of the night? Do we trust God enough to get some sleep? I think Jesus is modeling this reality for the disciples. We should be able to take comfort in the presence of Jesus. We should be able to take comfort in the promise of Jesus, even when the storm is raging. 
And so this detail is pointed out in verse 38, but then notice the question that they ask. They ask the question that all of us ask when we find ourselves in the hard place, when we find ourselves in the middle of a storm. We come to Jesus and we say, we charge him, we rebuke him, we ask, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, have you ever asked that question of Jesus? Have you ever found yourself in the middle of a situation that have caused you to look up and say, Jesus, do you not care that I'm perishing? Do you not care that I'm struggling? Do you not care that I'm hurting? Do you not care that I'm wandering aimlessly through the wilderness, it seems? Do you not care that I'm in a boat that's about to be capsized by the wind and the waves of this storm? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so we ask this question of Jesus. We rebuke Jesus oftentimes and then Notice how gracefully Jesus responds in verse 39. How gracefully he responds in verse 39. It says, in response to them waking him up and asking this question, it says, get this, Jesus woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace. He rebuked the wind and the sea. This is a fascinating moment. Jesus rebukes the storm. And he says to the storm, peace. Some of your translations may say, hush, be quiet. He says, peace, be still. And then notice what happens. It says, and the wind then ceased, and there was a great calm. The wind stopped, but not just the wind, the water stopped. Now, if you've ever looked at Lake Washington after uh, some windstorm has hit Seattle, if you've ever been out on the lake in those moments, when the wind stops, when the wind dies down, the water does not automatically stop. There's still some movement in the water. It it takes some time for the water to die down. And so Jesus, in this moment, he stands and he rebukes the storm and the sea, speaking peace into everything, speaking a great calmness into everything in this moment. And it's a fascinating picture of the sovereignty of Jesus rebuking the wind, rebuking the sea, bringing peace in this moment. And you and I get a picture of a Jesus who is sovereign over nature. You and I get a picture of a Jesus who is sovereign over the storm. And what's what's fascinating about this journey is they're moving across the sea, going to the other side. Understand that earlier in Mark chapter 1 verse 38, Jesus made the statement to his disciples that he needed to go elsewhere and proclaim the gospel of his kingdom. He tells the disciples that he has come to proclaim good news. He has a message to deliver to many people in many places. And so in an effort to establish his kingdom in the world, they're in this boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, and then this storm comes, and it seems as though this storm is standing in opposition to the advancement of the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is when you move through this moment and you get into Mark chapter 5, the very text that Jeff will share with us next week, Jesus comes to a man who's demon-oppressed and demon-possessed. And he speaks a word of peace into his life. He banishes this demon out of this man. And it's a fascinating contrast when you put these scenes together that Jesus, the king in the kingdom of God, he is sovereign over nature and he is sovereign over Satan. And ultimately, there's nothing that will prevent him from establishing his kingdom in the world. Jesus cannot be stopped. 
So with a word in this moment, he banishes the storm. In a word in this moment, he expels the wind and the rain, and he brings the waves that were crashing against the side of the boat to a great calm, to a stillness, to a peace. And so he speaks this powerful word, and then he looks at his disciples in verse 40, and he asks them a question. Notice the question in verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And in asking that question, we begin to discover some of the purpose Jesus had in mind for leading his disciples into the storm. The reason, or part of the reason why Jesus led them into this moment was because Jesus intended to reveal some truth to the disciples through the storm. You see, all of Mark chapter 4 is Jesus instructing his disciples. And so far, he's instructed them entirely through the word, through teaching, through verbally communicating words. But now, Jesus is going to use this storm, and he's going to teach more truth to his disciples. He's going to reveal truth through the storm. And this truth is going to help the disciples discover some things about themselves. This moment is when the disciples will learn that they are not as comforted by Jesus' presence and Jesus' promise as they should have been. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And he goes after their heart in this moment. He goes after this storm that has swelled up in them as a result of the storm that has been raging outside of them. Why are you afraid? Do you have no faith? So he begins to reveal truth about his disciples, this truth that they are gripped in fear and this truth that they're ultimately faithless. Now here's the challenge of this moment. The disciples' faithlessness was not caused by the storm. The storm did not cause the disciples to be faithless. The storm disclosed and revealed the fact that the disciples were faithless. In other words, any time you are bumped in this life, what is true about you is going to come out of you. What is true about you is going to come out of you. It's not unlike trying to walk through the Fremont Brewing tasting room and you have your full glass of craft beer and then somebody bumps your elbow. Whatever's in that glass is going to come out. Whatever's in that glass is going to spill over. And so this storm, in a sense, bumped the disciples, and what was in them began to come out of them. And what came out of them was fear and faithlessness. Fear and faithlessness bumping out of the disciples. And you get this picture of of what oftentimes have one of the ways in which Jesus uses storms and struggles in our lives is to disclose what is true And oftentimes, some of the truths he discloses about us are not always that flattering. Sometimes he discloses things about us that we would like to keep hidden. Sometimes he brings things to the surface that we don't want anyone else to see, and we think perhaps we can hide even from him. Faithlessness is coming out of the disciples. And you see their faithlessness tied back to the question in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, do you not care that we are dying in this moment? They they do not understand the promise and the presence of Jesus. They think they are going to perish. See, this is what unbelief does in our lives. This is what faithlessness does. Faithlessness actually projects the present into the future. 
When we get bumped and faithlessness comes out of us, our unbelief, as a friend reminded me this weekend, our unbelief projects the present into the future. In other words, if you ever find yourself in the middle of a storm, you think that storm's gonna last forever. If you ever find yourself stuck in a hard place, you think you're gonna be stuck there forever. You think the end has come Ultimately, that word perishing refers to eternal damnation. It is the word used in that sense in the book of Revelation. So they're speaking dramatically here. They are speaking understandably here, but they're speaking dramatically. Unbelief, they're projecting it, they're present into the future. This is gonna be true of me now and it's gonna be true of me forever. How many times do we find ourselves in storms and we begin to project the present into the future thinking this is gonna be the death of us? Or this hell is the hell I will know forever. But here's the flip side of that. If unbelief projects the present into the future, faith has this uncanny ability of bringing the future into the present. Faith has this ability of bringing the future into the present. And I think this is the flip, this is the script Jesus wants to flip in the hearts of the disciples. He's brought them into the storm to disclose their unbelief, to disclose their fear, because he wants to replace it with a greater fear and a better faith. He wants to replace it. He wants them to learn how to bring the future into the present, how to trust Jesus' promise that they will reach the other side. Nothing's going to stop the kingdom of God from coming into the world. Nothing's going to stop its advancement. And so Jesus wants them to bring the future into the present, to bring the promises of God into their moment. And this is what Jesus wants all of us to do when we find ourselves in the middle of a storm. And here's the good news. If you find yourself in the middle of a storm right now, it is possible that that storm may linger for a while. But it is equally true that that storm will not last forever. Three weeks ago, the Moore family took little Levi into the hospital where they stayed for three weeks of testing and monitoring, trying to figure out what was going on in his little body. This past weekend, the doctors released them. They were able to go home. They're at home now, but they're still not out of the storm. They just still don't know entirely what's wrong with Levi. They're still, they're still in need of prayer. They're still in need of support. They're still in need of love and encouragement from their faith family, and we stand ready and willing and eager to provide that to them. And, and we read this passage, and we must profess as a church that these types of storms may linger. They may last for a while. But the promise of this text and the promise of the gospel is that these storms will not last forever. That the storms we face in this life do not end with us perishing. They do not end in our destruction. Even if we die in the world that is, we rest assured that there is a better world to come. We know that the kingdom of God has come into the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we know that the kingdom of God is still coming. And one day the kingdom of God will come in its fullest and final form. And the kingdom of God will dispel every sin, every sickness, every suffering, every storm that you and I wrestle through in this world. The kingdom of God will banish it all. This is the hope of this text. This is the hope of the gospel. It is knowing that there's coming a day when Jesus stands on the scene of the world and he says to everything, peace, be still. 
And he brings an utter and eternal calm to all of his people. He brings an utter and eternal calm to the entire creation. That's a day we look forward to. And so we bring that future into the present by holding on to that truth even when we're lingering in the middle of a storm. Even when we find ourselves in the middle of a hard place. And as we do so, as, as we discover truth about who we are as disciples of Jesus, as we do this and we think in that direction, we begin to discover more and more the truth about who Jesus is. And ultimately, this is where this story drives us to. In verse 40, after he calms the storm, he asks the question, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And here we find this strategic question strategically placed. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus revealing truth through the storm, truth about his disciples, and ultimately truth about himself. He wants the disciples to understand his word and his presence. He wants his disciples to find rest and peace in his word and his presence. There's a guy by the name of Peter Bolt who wrote a book uh, called The Cross from a Distance, and it is a, it is a journey through the book of Mark, and he identifies how Mark places strategic questions in the middle of narratives for a reason that should shape us, for a reason that should transform us. This is what he says. He says, you know, the trouble with questions, particularly in narratives in the book of Mark, the cr- trouble with questions is that once heard, they do not leave the hearers alone. They are asked of everyone who hears them. Questions of a narrative are extremely important for the reader of the narrative. So the disciples' question then becomes our question. This ultimate question in verse 41, who then is this, should become our question. This ultimate question is what we ask ourselves as we're reading this story, as we're looking at Jesus, listening to him, seeing what he does in this moment, and we want to know the answer, who then is is this Jesus? And ultimately, our lives hinge on how we answer that question. Ultimately, our hope hinges on how we answer that question. You see, if Jesus is simply a good man, we don't have much hope in him because he can't really change our situation or our circumstance right now. If Jesus is simply a good man, he can't really do anything about the future state of the world we live in. If Jesus is simply a teacher, if we reduce him to a rabbi, he cannot do much about the world that we live in now. So it is imperative for our lives to understand who then is this Jesus. And this story is presented by Mark to reveal who Jesus is. And it's done strategically because the water that is that is raging in this moment, the Sea of Galilee. Understand that in the ancient world, the sea, water, lake, whatever the case may be, the sea symbolized this uncontrollable power and this uncontrollable destruction. The sea was a very terrifying metaphor in the hearts of God's people. And in fact, in the hearts of many men and women all throughout the ancient world, the sea was a scary place. And so when you read in the Old Testament and you see how God relates to the sea and how God relates to the waters, you get a picture of God's sovereignty and his power over that which people think is uncontrollable. So in Job chapter 38, for example, you read a passage like this. God is is revealing himself to Job and he describes his relationship with the sea and he says this. He asks the question, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? 
He said, when I made clouds in its When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it, referring to the sea, and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud ways be stayed. God is saying, I'm sovereign over the sea. I'm sovereign over the the apparent chaos in the world. And in Job's situation, he's reminding Job, who has been through the storm. He's saying, Job, I'm, I'm sovereign over the chaos of your life. Everything seems to be out of control, but I want to remind you who I am. I am God, and I've got this under control. I'm going to flesh out a purpose that will ultimately blow your mind. A purpose that will ultimately benefit Not just you, Job, but many men and women who would come to know and trust me as their God. And so you get this question, who then is this in the context of the sea? And you and I should be prepared to give the answer that Jesus then is the Lord of the storm. He is the God of the sea. He is the one who brings order out of our chaos. He is the one who is ultimately in control of every moment we journey through in this world. And when Jesus reveals this, when he discloses this, when when the disciples begin to catch a glimpse of this after seeing this Jesus who in one moment was sleeping, now standing and speaking a word to silence the storm, when he does that, their, their response in verse 41 is baffling. Notice the journey that they go on. They start with the storm coming and they're afraid. Jesus stands up and he speaks calm to the sea. He silences the storm. You would think they would be at peace. You would think they would be calmed in this moment, but they're not. It says instead that their response in verse 41, that they were filled with great fear. They were more fearful after Jesus calmed the storm than they were during the storm. They thought they were afraid of the storm. But then they see the Lord of the storm. And they realize they are in the presence of the Holy One. And when we are in the presence of the Holy One, the Lord of the storm, it should arouse fear in us. Jesus is the greater fear. And the reason why that's important is because whatever we're afraid of, it has a tendency to master us. It has a tendency to control us. And all of us are afraid of some things. And all of us tend to be mastered and controlled by that which we are afraid of. But in this moment, Jesus is contrasted with the storm, saying, look, I am the greater fear. I'm the one who wants to ultimately master you. And when I master you, I'm going to be merciful to you. And we begin to see this as we really step back and we look at this story from a a broader perspective. Because not only is Mark telling us that the Lord of the storm is the greater fear, the greater one to be mastered by, the holy one we should be humble before, Jesus is the greater fear because ultimately, get this, he is the greater Jonah. Now to understand that, let me back up just a moment. The way Mark accounts this story is he deliberately lays out this account in a way that parallels Jonah's experience in the Old Testament. And then elsewhere, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, we are told that Jesus is the one who is greater than Jonah. Now, to catch the significance of that, you and I just need to compare and contrast the two stories. 
Mark deliberately paralleling this account with what happened in Jonah's life. If if you're not familiar with Jonah, he was an Old Testament prophet called to go to the Ninevites to proclaim uh, a message from God. But as he was called to do that, he rebelled. He tried to go in the opposite direction. And so he, he went uh, in the opposite direction and he got in a boat. And that's where the first parallel is. Both Jonah and Jesus got in a boat. As they were both in a boat, both Jonah and Jesus, as they were in the boat, storms arose. And what's interesting about the account is as the storms began to rage, both Jonah and Jesus went to sleep. They both slept in the stern. And in the accounts, both Jonah and Jesus, while they were sleeping, they were stirred to wake up by other passengers in the boat. The sailors went to Jonah, the disciples went to Jesus. They woke him up. And they woke both Jonah and Jesus up with the same fear. If you do not get up, we're about to perish. We're about to die. We need help in this moment. And in both the story of Jonah and Jesus, God performs a miracle. He calms the storm instantly in response to something that went down. And in the story of Jonah, you know what happened, right? Jonah threw himself into the sea. He said, if you throw me into the sea, God will calm the storm. And so the sailors did. They cast Jonah overboard, and once he landed in the water, the storm ceased. Now, you come back to Mark chapter 4, and you think, well, what's the parallel there? Because in this story, Jesus is not thrown into the sea. Jesus does not go overboard. But then we think, well, maybe the story's not over, right? Maybe Jesus is more concerned about our faith. Maybe Jesus is more concerned about a, an ultimate storm. Maybe, maybe Jesus has a deeper ambition in mind. And so maybe, maybe Jesus did throw himself into a storm. Maybe at the end of the gospel when Jesus went to the cross, he did so in order to cast himself into the ultimate storm so that you and I may know the hope of his kingdom so that you and I may have our fear of the immediate storms in our lives dispelled by the greater fear that Jesus is, the greater Jonah, the one who is capable of mastering our lives and leading us through the storms and into his ultimate kingdom. So the parallel may break down in the immediate moment of this story, but I think when we take the whole gospel into account, we begin to see how Jesus is the greater fear, how he is the greater Jonah. We begin to see how Jesus cast himself into the ultimate storm, separation and alienation and exile from his heavenly father so that you and I never have to face that storm. And when you and I find ourselves never having to face that storm, i.e. the wrath of God, the judgment of God, it does something to us that will enable us to endure and have faith and have the right kind of fear when we face the immediate storms of life in this world. So what do you do with a sleeping Jesus? You trust him. Because the sleeping Jesus is the saving Jesus. What do you do with the sleeping Jesus? You rest in him and you find yourself able to sleep even when all hell is breaking loose in your life. It's not easy, but it's true. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to take these truths into our souls. I pray that your word would fall fruitfully upon us, that we would trust you 
with whatever we are going through, that we would rest in you, that we would know that you got this, that we would know that you are gonna lead us through this world and you will bring us into the world that is to come. We know our future and would you give us grace now to bring the future into the present so that we can find hope and exercise faith in the present. God, we love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.